Thanks for joining us this afternoon. We're into podcast number 34. 34. That's a lot of talking. Anyways, today we have Daniel McMahon. He is the owner of ISH24 in Australia. And we're going to be chatting just a little bit about confined space, how that works in Australia, a little bit about ISH24, and a little bit in regards to some of the rigging and some of the equipment they use down in Australia. So without any further ado, here's Daniel. So welcome to the podcast. We've got Daniel on the line. Is it, what do you prefer, Daniel or Dan or? Mate, I actually answer to anything. anything. So Dan, Daniel, whatever. Right on. And you're down under for us, down in Australia. And uh, you're the owner, aren't you, of Ish24? Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm um, I'm the owner of ISH24 based in uh, Melbourne, Victoria, or Bendigo, just out of Melbourne, and uh, over in Perth, Western Australia. Okay, so just a little rundown, like who is ISH24? Like what, what does it primarily do? So ISH24 is a, it started off as a confined space management business. And um, what we have over here, especially in mining and heavy industrial, is when they shut down, that um, a lot of the work, especially in mining, because the, the plants tear themselves from inside out, is, is all the work's in confined spaces. So we started a business a little while ago called ISH24 that, that manages confined spaces. And that is, you know, from the, from the standby person to the paperwork, atmosphere testing, rescue. Um, so we have about uh, 400 employees, I guess, uh, across the country. Uh, a lot of that's um, casual. And when uh, plants and stuff break down or shut down, we we send a, a heap of people in. It could be 10 people. It could be 130 people um, to go in and help manage the confined spaces. So uh, that's pre- the, pre- the predominant part of the business. And then um, from that, ISH24 has expanded into an RTO or registered training organisation because we couldn't get enough qualified people or we'd get people from the market or people would, would join us but their skill sets were so low from other training providers so we ended up starting our own training company to train our own people and it's just snowballed from there so people would would, would audit or speak to our people and go where do you get the training and it was identified that it was in-house so we just sort of evolved from that and then evolved into rescue as well so that's pretty much what ISH24 does. That's awesome. I didn't realize you had that many staff. Now, just a couple questions, because obviously people here are going to be listening from different parts in the world. And just some of the things that you mentioned kind of twig me on some other questions to ask you. You say an RTO, a registered training organization. Is that required in Australia that you register with somebody? Yeah, so it's it's um, it's, it's very different to other parts of the world. So um an RTO is a registered training organisation. It's got to be registered with a company, a government organisation called ASQA. So you can't just be a trainer in a, a training company in Australia. You've got to be a registered training organisation. So once you're a registered training organisation, you then need to apply for uh, the courses that you can deliver. And so ASQA set a heap of um, guidelines and, and, and tasks and bits and pieces that you need to meet before you're allowed to deliver that course. So 
we can't just go and deliver a course, we'll use Vertical Rescue, for example, without being approved by ASQA and without having the course accreditation. So in a lot of cases, you can do the courses outside of an RTO, but when you go to work with someone, they go, give us your qualifications. And so you need that, that government-backed paperwork, I guess, or, or, or qualification. So an RTO has to have a, a certain amount of uh, courses on scope, which you need to apply for. And then once you've applied for and got them and delivered them, then every two years or so, we actually get audited by ASQA to make sure we're delivering it as per um, their guidelines and to their, their marks, you know? That's incredibly interesting. So we're, we're kind of cutting off on a tangent here, but it's a lot of people around the world are looking at different things like this. So when you say like vertical rescue, you're registered, to what standard does that government organization then hold you to? Is there a standard for rescue in Australia? Do you use other standards? Does it just have to be a known standard? So you've got you've got many things. You've got work. You've got codes of practice, and you've got Australian standards. Now Australian standards, it's it's a it's a minefield. There's there's Australian standards for absolutely everything we we do over here. It's really overregulated. So if you're talking about vertical rescue, they'll grab a standard from say a rope section or an equipment section and and make up. Um, a vertical rescue course from that. So a vertical rescue course won't be to a, a standard as such that will have key points that must be addressed, as in, you know, uh, patient care, uh, equipment, uh, ropes, and, and where ropes are made and how they're made. And, and, and it goes on that, that there's a heap of guidelines that we must touch on and must meet and must collect evidence in not only um, on paper, but impractical as well, and we've got to, we've got to mark and and score it all, and and you've got to pass according to the ASQA guidelines. That's incredibly interesting. So I'm assuming that's a bit of a double-edged sword. It does create a barrier to entry for mom and pop coming out of their basement trying to you know deliver some sort of offshoot course. But I'm sure you can correct me if I'm wrong that there must be some issues with trying to change the standards from them when new products or new techniques come on the market? Yeah, it, look, it's if, if we talk with vertical rescue, it's, it's quite open. But that, like they'll say, you know, you need to touch this, 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 and this. And and some some trainers will just do that. So, you know, you could do a vertical rescue course in, in three, three days, four days. It's up to the training organisations, I guess, to try and promote it and push it longer than the three days, four days, and and have different techniques. So some of the techniques that you, you have to touch on are you know, safely uh, lowering and raising or building a hauling system or understanding mechanical advantage. So it's up to each RTO to then probably go beyond that and make their courses more detailed. So the, the problem is, especially in Australia, is if if it is a, a mum and dad and they go, I want to do a vertical rescue course, and they look at costs, for example, they'll go to a three-day course or you know, a, a basic course, but not actually get anything from it. So an RTO is a double-edged sword for that very reason. If you do too much, you can cost yourself out of the market, which, which that's the side we always lean towards. Um, a perfect example is confined space. So to enter and work in a confined space, you need to have a qualification in, in Australia. You can get that course done in three and four hours some places, where ours is eight hours. 
Uh, and in some of those three and four hour courses, you don't get to do any practical where we make sure at least half of ours is practical. So just because you can get delivered that course content and be qualified, if you look beyond that, you know, there, there can be next to nothing. You've just got a bit of paper or you've actually got some practical skills, depending on the RTOs you pick. It's interesting because where I'm from, British Columbia, it's, uh, it's highly regulated here too. And I mean, our confined space entry course is eight hours. And a lot of times when people are done that, you look and you go, you're thinking you need more training before you enter a space um, just because of the massive amount of regulations around it. So that does sound very similar. Yeah, and, and, and that's one of the problems we have, especially with the confined space entry, is, is we'll have people ring us and go, hey, look, we can get a confined space entry. We can get working at heights and issue, issue permits you know, eight hours from this other provider. That's going to cost us $300, $400. Where you guys want $300 just for the one qualification. And I'm saying, yep, absolutely, 100%. But your people will walk out of here knowing exactly what to do. Um, you know, at the basic level, we, we can go to the next level where it's a two-day course or a three-day course, you know, including VA and gas testing atmospheres, and there's so much more. Oh, yeah. So it, it's... It really, it comes back to business and, and individuals looking at what they actually get for their dollar. And and that's one of the biggest and hardest things we face here in Australia at the moment. I can see that. Now, you mentioned a couple other things, like with confined space management and listening to some of what you're saying. I'm assuming you need some sort of qualified person in Canada. It's a CRSP in the States. It's like a CSP that has to assess these spaces create the documentation like a hazard assessment or a field level risk assessment or some sort before people enter is that the same in australia yeah absolutely so you've got to have your confined space um register already done so let's talk about a gold mine for example they might have when they basically turn the plant off because they're tipping in in rock yeah and, and rock wears out everything so once it tips in from a crusher and goes into a mill it disappears and basically pops out the other end as gold and and, and byproduct so internally it's, it's wrecking everything it's wearing everything out regardless of the size of the rock so for example we might send 60 people to a gold mine um those 60 people manage 60 confined spaces so in addition to our 60 people there might be another 300 400 people on site those three or 400 people disappear into confined spaces, gone in, in a heartbeat as soon as the shift starts. So they need to be registered. Um, then we need to do the atmosphere testing. Once we deem it, um, it can sustain life and, and we're happy to work in there, then we've got to raise the permits. Once the permits are raised, and it's all based on all the isolations, et cetera. And, and this could be a big process. This might take hours. It might take 10 minutes, depending on the job. Um, once all that's in place, then we allow them to go in and do the work. And so my guys pretty much just manage that confined space once they're in there, um, doing continuously continuous uh, monitoring of the atmosphere, um, just keeping an eye on the guys, checking. Uh, every every entry is recorded, so pretty much they call back to our, our head office or our, our office on site and tell them when people are in and when they're out. So if there's a, an emergency on site, we can account for everybody. So if you've got 300 people in confined spaces and then all of a sudden you've got an issue, um, we can get everybody out and, and account for them in you know, no time at all. And that sounds very similar to our regulations here. Now, your regulatory body, is it federal? Is it 
state or provincial? Is it regional? Who who is the regulatory body for health and safety in Australia? Oh, that's a good question. So we, we have we have um, all different states, and so it was up to the states pretty much to write their own. But but if you if you look at working at heights, for example, um, there used to be you're not deemed working at heights unless you're over two metres or from two metres and above. So we've got a, a real issue over here in Australia where people uh, are still dying from falling at heights in, in all different industries. So I think it's about every every 16 days, every 14 days, someone's injured or killed from, from working at heights. Um, so what happened was when they looked at it all, that, that working at heights, the two-metre rule, over half, just under half, we're still being killed or injured from under two metres. So the government said, right, out, let's change this to, um, instead of working at heights as two metres, it's from when you're working from, uh, we're working at a risk from falling from one level to another with an unacceptable risk. So they try to get rid of the two metre rule. Um, the state governments, most have adopted that. So there's still two or three that haven't and they still work at the two metres. But what they're pushing for is a harmonisation code or a harmonisation where every state works off the same because, you know, in, in one hour I can be in the next state and we could be working on a different different law. So they're trying to push hard that across the country it's all the one harmonisation code and everyone's working under the one thing, you know. Yeah, and I, I understand that because in Canada it's a provincial regulatory body unless it has to do with certain federal things like docks, for instance, or airlines or telecoms, and then it's federal, unless you're on the water, and then it's federal but Transport Canada, Canada Coast Guard. So we can quite literally go down and have people working under two or three different laws that they report to on the same site, depending on who the employer is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it sounds very similar. The other crazy thing we get here, I can go with rope access. Our staff in Ontario aren't allowed to work under rope access. They have to do a few other things because the Ministry of Labor in Ontario doesn't recognize it. Yet if I send a rope access team from BC to Ontario, I can work to my standard. I only have to follow the Ontario standard if it's higher. So I can make the argument, and I have, that I'm following a BC standard, which is higher than the Ontario standard, so with BC workers, I can run rope access in Ontario, but with the same, with my own staff from Ontario, I'm not allowed to do it. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah so it sounds like it's fairly similar down there, where some, uh, you know, some alignment would be nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the other thing we've got is the market itself. So if you talk mining, very, very on top of uh, law and regulations and stuff, but then we might get called to uh, water industry. And, and they're basically calling us going, we know that there's some law about this, but we have no idea what to do. So, you know, we might get a plumber who 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 rings and goes, mate, I need to get into this sewage pit. And I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. And I've just been told by somebody that I'm supposed to be trained, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we, we cover a range of, of industries. And depending on which job we go to, we've got to be flexible and, and work our way through it, you know. Right. Oh. Now, do your regulations require 
or have a requirement for rescue. Uh, like I know our regs read that the employer is responsible for first aid and rescue of any other people in a confined space. Is that similar then to Australia? Yeah, so we do, and it's a big transition right at the moment. So we have, it, it's, it's pretty much written something along the lines of um, you've got to have a rescue plan in place and you've got to rehearse it before you do an entry. Um, and that's about as vague as it is. So what uh, a lot of our smaller customers, our bigger customers like mining clients and big industrial, they have their own rescue teams or rescue personnel on site. So we're working with those guys. But when you start talking to smaller businesses, and I'm talking smaller as in, you know, they might have a couple of hundred people, that they write their rescue plan and it says, in case of emergency, ring triple zero, which is the same as 911 or whatever. So what they're realising is if you're in country Victoria and you ring triple zero and you ring an ambulance and say, hey, I've got somebody stuck in a confined space, and then the ambulance turns up, and they're going, right, what do you want us to do? There's a guy stuck in a confined space that's at height in a toxic environment. That's not our job. You know, you need to ring the, the country fire authority. Um, and even if you ring the country fire authority, unless you give them the right instructions, the wrong, wrong team might turn up with the wrong skill set. You go, well, what do you want us to do? We can't, we can't access that. So we're seeing a big shift in the market where they're now coming to us going, we need to train our own people. And not so much so that they can do a rescue, but at least they can recognise the, the skill sets that's needed and write rescue plans accordingly. And then we can make sure we've got the right people here or we engage ISH24 to come and help. So we're seeing a massive change in the market right now where, where people are starting to recognise that ringing triple zero is not adequate. Now, is your fire service down there, is that a responsibility for them to respond to industrial sites for technical rescue? Or is that not allowed? Like, I, I, I mentioned it because up here, we can't call 911 and expect the fire service to show up. It's actually written right in the regulations that if you think that's going to happen, you have to have a written agreement with that fire service outlining what they will and will not do. Um, is that similar in Australia or can you just dial triple zero and just expect that a technical rescue team is going to show up and solve your problem? And, and, and that's the exact issue that we have is we're so, well not we, they are so brainwashed to ring triple zero and all the problems will be resolved. But we've, we've got industrial and plant, I suppose, the same as you guys anywhere. So you might ring the, the local country fire authority who don't yeah. have any vertical rescue or confined space rescue or any of that. So they'll turn up and they'll just look and go, what do you want us to do? So um, it is it is ingrained here at the moment that ring triple zero and all the problems will be resolved. We're, yes, we're, now, we're, we're now seeing a massive change where they're going, that's not adequate because these guys are going to turn up in, in some cases because we do have technical rescue groups throughout our country fire authority but they're not at every station. They're spread right out. So unless you ask the right questions when you, when you ring triple zero, you may not get the right team turn up or they might be an hour, two hours away. Yeah, and so that's similar to us where our fire service is predominantly municipal or city-based. We won't even cross city boundaries unless we're asked for by mutual aid. So if you're in a major urban area, you could certainly get a fire service if you ask or tell the right information that could probably solve your problems. But you drive an hour out of Metro Vancouver here, and you're going to find a fire service that has no idea how to solve your problems. So it does sound very similar in that yeah, aspect. And a lot of our country fire um, 
authority are all volunteers. So although it's it's state backed and they've got the equipment, but they're all volunteers that make up the team. So they have permanents, you know, within an hour or so. But yeah. the majority within that hour are all volunteers. So it, it's it's a tough call to expect them to turn up and know everything, you know. Yeah. Let's change gears a bit here. What's your background? Like how did you get involved in this industry? Oh, jeepers creepers. I um I have an extensive background. I uh I was a I was a bugger of a kid, I guess. And uh, and my mum made me join the army when I was seventeen. So um, I joined the army when I was seventeen, and and probably the very first thing that slapped me in the face was the army was responsibility. Like it's it's I joined a company called Three R Our Parachute Battalion Red Berets, and and I realised if I was seventeen or thirty, it didn't matter. The responsibility and 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 my actions were equal to everybody else. So. I enjoyed that, and and once uh, I actually hurt my back, I cracked my back, and 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 got a couple of bulge discs and stuff parachuting, and ended up couldn't stay in that unit, so got out, and and that stuck with me that that I enjoyed the responsibility. So I had many jobs in between. Ended up starting uh, my own company one day, making um, shoot linings for mining, and most of our shoot linings uh, are in confined spaces, so. What I noticed back then, this was 15 years ago, was we'd be working in confined spaces in, in you know, 50 degree heat, humid as hell, um, exhausted, and the mine or the industrial setting would supply people to manage us inside that confined space or look out for us or be our rescue. And, you know, I might look outside the confined space and they'd nicked off to smoker or, or you know, they're asleep or they're on their phone or whatever, and I just said to myself, you know what? There's there's a need in in Australia to have a specialised market for for having people that can actually manage confined spaces who have um, an idea on what's going on internally and and would be able to help if if needed. So I ended up starting a second company called ISH24. <laughs> that, that that actually that was to manage my own people. I ended up selling that 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 line of business and and. The ISH24 took off. And, uh, for example, in the last two years, I think we've managed uh, 8,900 8, confined spaces. Um, that's 85,000, 86,000 entries. So it, it's, it's actually got really busy and, and really big. So since then, I've just sort of been stuck in, um, in ISH24. And the demand for ISH24 then to evolve into rescue was there. So... Uh, we built a new rescue centre in, in country Victoria and we took a different tack on how we do that with everybody else and and that sort of occupies me now probably 60% of my time or even more. It's 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 actually flat out. That's excellent. Um, interesting that you bring up that. I mean, you and I have had shared some beers in different spots and I didn't realise you were former Army. Uh, there's a lot of Ronin staff that are former Army and I guess it's just one of those shout outs out there. And you've mentioned the responsibility. Once you hire former soldiers, I mean, I remember doing my section commander's course at 19 and you're wielding enough firepower. The responsibility on you is immense at that age. And when those people leave the military and then, you know, kind of find their feet underneath them in the civilian market, 
they're used to wielding that kind of responsibility and they do make some really, really great staff in regards to their ability to manage that sort of responsibility and the stress that comes with it and even the loyalty factor that lives there. Uh, absolutely. And, 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 you're, and you're right in saying that, that as, a, as, a, as a young person to, to lead the army and have that responsibility um, and then to join civilian work life where you are a, in better terms, just a worker. It's, it's a very big transition and quite hard to, to deal with sometimes. So uh, we love employing ex-military people. Um, they fit right in and, and we, we load them up with responsibility because we know they like it and they know they're good at it and they, they deal with it really well. Uh, kudos to you. Um, you mentioned the rescue center. Um, can you describe that a little bit? A training center, a learning center? What kind of, what are we talking about there? Yeah, so I live, I actually live in, in Bendigo country, Victoria. So I'm not far from the border of New South Wales and Victoria, and that border is a river. And so um, I spend a lot of time up on the river. We have a houseboat there with my kids. So I used to drive back from that houseboat. We used to go past these disused grain silos that are um, 25 metres high, 82 feet, I think that is. Yeah. And I used to drive past there, and there's about six of them all nestled together just out of town, and I used to look at it going, that'd be very cool to do rescue off. That'd be a very cool rescue center. I reckon I'd done that three or 400 times. <laughs> and then um, I said one day, I said, I might as well pick up the phone and ring them. So I rang, they actually belong to a company called Grain Corp. So I rang them and said, look, there's disused grain silos out the road here that uh, are overrun, no good. Uh, I'm interested in buying them. And they said, you know, what do you want to do with them? And I said, oh, I want to start a rescue center. And I, I actually bounced this off my own staff, and they all thought I was crazy, going, no one will go to country Victoria to, to do rescue training. Like, the way that's done in Australia is slightly different. So I just ignored them and then uh, said, okay, I want to buy it. They turned around and said, mate, if you've got the money, you can have it. So I brought it. And uh, I took my staff out there, some of my staff, and I stood in the middle of this disused this, this grain silo area. And I said to them, this is my vision, and this is what I want. And they all looked at me and said, you're an idiot. This is, this is not going to work. And I said, just cut the trees, do this, move that, clean this. And uh, we've built a world-renowned rescue centre now. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. It, uh, there's three or four structures at 25 metres. We have 13 real-world confined spaces. We have over 40 scenarios. Um, we've built obstacle courses on the side of some of these 25-metre um, structures where for stretcher rigging, you know, from vertical to horizontal, you've, you've got to work your way through. We've got um, massive confined spaces where where some of the scenarios when you're doing confined space rescue, you'll go in there and you might burn three or four cylinders trying to achieve the task. So everything we do there is real world. Everything we do is we try to make it as realistic as possible um, and it's gaining a lot of momentum. So we, we're, we're flat out of it. It's, it's absolutely crazy. I started another course there on, on, on Monday. And um, we're getting all different people from, from mining, from, from petrochem, from water industry, from grain, uh, you name it. We're getting everybody come through there. And a lot of rescue teams, the local country fire authority, et cetera, they'll hire the facilities and they'll go out there and, and run scenarios, et cetera. So... A lot of rescue teams from mining will ring up and just say, hey, we want to come there for three days and just bash out a heap of scenarios. You know, what do you got? I go, mate, just turn up and I'll talk to the guys and I'll, I'll judge the level of 
expertise and I'll just set it from there. And so um, it's getting a lot of momentum and it's actually one of the best training facilities around by far. Oh, that's outstanding. So I guess that leads us into a little bit about uh, rigging and equipment in Australia. You've obviously done a bit of traveling and seen some stuff overseas from your point of view overseas. What do you figure is some pluses and minuses that you've seen in regards to what you're doing in Australia compared to what other people are doing around the world? Um, so within Australia, the, the, the problem, it's, it's not a problem, but the thing that I see is a lot of trainers or a lot of people in, in say, vertical confined space rescue, they only know what they know and they only teach what they know. Um, where we've taken an approach that, there's a hundred ways that we can do it. As long as it's safe and effective, we don't care. So we're very open-minded in how it's done. Where we see a lot of people trapped in, this is the device you should use and this is the technique you should use, where I'm completely opposed to that, where it's, mate, this is the problem. What do we do to achieve it? And that's how we sort of, we use our training as well. And that's how we use our rescue scanner. But I find that, once people start using equipment and stuff here in Australia, they're stuck with it. And they're not that open-minded to, to changing quickly. They're, they're very hard to convert over for new stuff. We're, we're the opposite. Anything new comes out, we purchase it, we take it and we smash it and give it a real red-hot crack and see if it works. And so when you train with us, you get a, a choice of a heap of different equipment and you can pick your own stuff that you like. So with regards to Australia, I think, there's only a few different places in Australia where they're very open-minded and very, very open to how things are done. In a lot of cases, it's very much, this is the techniques we use and this is the systems we use and this is the equipment we use. So the thing I like about traveling around the world and, and working with different people and working with different rescue teams is I always pick up one different thing every single time at the minimum. And I bring that back and I adapt it and I bring it to my team, our rescue team internally at ISH24, and I bring it back to them and go, Let's try this. Let's do this. And that's how we evolve is, is by just looking at other people, how they're doing things and watching and going, well, I don't like it, but I'm going to give that a crack and see how it goes. And you find the benefits of it and then you can adapt it and, and use it. You know? It's really becoming a worldwide industry and a worldwide phenomenon now. Um, so, so much more so than when we started all of this. It really is. Oh, absolutely. And and one thing about, about traveling overseas is, is – Although I'm, I'm, I'm running a rescue team and we're doing a competition, I'm just constantly looking at everything going, that's cool. That was awesome. That was great. You know, I'm going to grab that. I'm going to change that and modify that. And, yeah, I, I love traveling and I love looking at other things. And, and I'm very open-minded. So I love looking at how people do things and go, right, I'm going to grab that and modify that and use that myself. Now, is I ask because I obviously have no idea. I've never actually even been to Australia I uh, have to hit there at some point, but is there a lot of influence in that when you talked about, you know, people kind of get set in their ways that they're doing things, is that influence from inside of Australia? Like, is the equipment built there? Is there manufacturing companies that are selling gear, you know, in the Australian market space, or is it more international brands that have distribution reps in Australia? It's more international brands that have distribution here. Okay. Um, there's a couple like Ferno make um, tripods and things like that and, and stretches and bits and pieces. So there's some local manufacturing, absolutely. Um, but the majority of the stuff would come from Europe, America, and it's, it's sold through distribution places here. 
Okay, so very similar to the rest of the world in that aspect. Yeah, absolutely. All righty. Um, one thing I wanted to chat about, and now that I hear about the military background, maybe this is where it comes from, but I had the pleasure of watching your team at one of these competitions, and the command and control systems you use, I felt were one of the best that I saw at that particular competition. And now with the military background, it makes a little bit more sense, but is that something that's taught in Australia? Is that something you brought with you from the military or uh, just kind of elaborate on that? Oh, look, I probably get a little bit of criticism from my management style in a lot of places because it's not to, it's not to the expectations of some of our clients where they expect it to be a bit more intense, I guess, where, I've taken the approach, and, and it is from a military background, that the situation is what it is. Uh, the hurdles that arise are just hurdles. We're just going to knock them down, and our end goal never changes. Like We're just trying to achieve something. So um, I just found that if, if I get myself all caught up in, in trying to, to do something quickly, the intensity all picks up, and it affects my crew and my team. So I've got a very... I wouldn't say it's casual, but I've got a very low, low-key, calm. Uh, I like hurdles because that's something to just knock down, and and it, you just got to work your way through it, you know. And and uh, that 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 flows onto my team, I think, in most in most cases where it is what it is at the end of the day, and we just got to achieve the goal. Don't get caught up by time. Don't get caught up by anything. And if there's a hurdle, knock it down. And let's just get the job done, regardless of time, as long as it's done safely and effectively. Yeah, well, it was definitely effective when I saw it. It was a very calm demeanor. And I know uh, some of the other folks there that I know from Europe and North America that watched your team compete also mentioned it to me in some beers after the fact that uh, they're really, really happy with the command and control that was done on your your team. Yeah, one of the, one of the ones... I can't remember which one it was, but um, as I said, I got a sore back and, and I'm constantly looking it up. So I thought to myself, I can do this just laying on the ground. So I just laid on the ground and looked up <laughs> and done it. And one of the Asian teams turned up and went, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, I'm running my team. They're up there. So this is easier on my back. I can still do everything. And he was like, this is incredible. I've never seen this before. And that's the joys of watching other people operate because there's certainly things, like you say, you can take away from everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Every time. Uh, just a little bit of Q&A stuff now. Uh, what's your favorite descender and why? Oh, yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> favorite descender. Wow. Um, it was always the Petzl ID until the new one came out. And um, it's not as user-friendly. So um, that's what we sort of went on always. Recently, we've, we've grabbed the clutch. Um, we've actually embraced the new clutch, I guess. And I, I actually don't think, as a, as a personal descender, you can go past that anymore. It's, it does everything. It's easy to use. It's, the efficiencies are amazing. So we're actually just converting all my team over to the clutch. But in the rescue centre, we, we stick with... Um, a choice, and I've got to be very careful at the rescue center when we're training. I don't want to go. This is what you have to use. I need to stick with my philosophy on. Here is everything. So we have D fours, we have um, sparrows, we have um, Kong, we have everything there, and 
we make them use everything. And then we, we know where they're going to gravitate to towards the end, but we want them all to use it and understand why they're using it, you know? And, and so at this point, I'm, I'm actually converted to the clutch. Okay. Now, are you running 11 or 12 and a half millimeter rope in Australia? Well, you know, if you talk about Country Fire Authority, they only run 13 mil still. Okay. Um, and everywhere else in uh, industry pretty much will run 11 mil. So 11 mil is, is, is the, the, the predominant. The problem is, is when you have a, an industrial site near a, uh, a Country Fire Authority where they try to align, then they'll convert also to 11 mil. So we have a, have a mixture. So I'm, I'm also part of the Country Fire Authority or CFA technical rescue team here in, in Bendigo, which is predominantly mine rescue and vertical rescue or technical rescue. Now, they're, they're a little different. They run 11 mil because they've got to go and adapt to mine sites. So everyone at the mine site runs 11 mil, but everyone else in the Country Fire Authority, Country Fire Authority run 13. So they're probably the only ones that run 11 mil because if they turn up to a, a mine site and they're all running 13 mil, it's just not going to work, you know. So um, having said that, we have the same problem. If two CFA units turn up and, and we've been called, we have the same issue. So if we've set up first with 11 mil and they turn up with 13, they'll usually bin the uh, 11 mil and convert to 13. That's interesting. Okay. Um, do you have a favorite rope or a uh, style of rope that you like? Or um, you don't have to go manufacture. You could even just go type um, or production style, you know, um, we look. We, we we were using Blue Water. Um, yeah. That that become look. That's a, and it was a great product. I, I can't I can't um, have any faults with it whatsoever. But it become too costly for us, especially at the rescue centre. We end up using a lot of rope. So we're just converted to sterling in the last month or so. Um, that's a new rope to us. But from what we've seen so far, it seems like a good product. And which sterling rope are you using? Like an HTP. HTP, yeah. yeah. It is a popular brand around the world, I find. Yeah, so hopefully it does does well by us. But that's the one we're, we're gravitating to at the moment. So I think that that's going to be our rope of choice for, for the next 12 months anyway. And if it, if it stands up, then we'll stick with it for sure. Okay, a couple more. Favorite carabiner and why? Do you guys utilize screw gate? Do you utilize auto lockers? Is there a certain preference style size that you have any, that you prefer? You know, I um, most of the companies that we teach, or most of the the, the teams that we teach, use Screwgate. Um, I'm not a fan because I just through our checks, I constantly find that you can find one open now and then. You know, and, and it bothers me. And, and around where we are, it's a very gold mining industry. Uh, a lot of history here with gold, so we have a lot of prospectors that come and want to buy equipment off us and and uh, go gold press prospecting themselves down old charts. So I've I've got the stance that we only use triple action carabiners now. Okay. Uh, we promote those because number one, I don't want to be involved with selling a, a, a screw gate that the guy doesn't know how to use. So triple action. Um, so we were using uh, CT, triple action aluminium carabiners. We've again just converted through to Rock Exotica. Um, it's a slightly smaller carabiner. The action is slightly different where we have to push up the first action on the rock exotic. It's pulled down. So we just found that easy to use and it's a slightly smaller. So it sits in the cup of your hand better. So we've just converted to those as well. Okay. And kind of the last question on equipment, uh, packaging device. 
you would run a lot of confined space. Is there some packaging device down there that you say you can't use with, you can't be without or? Packaging as in stretcher? Yeah, like a, some sort of patient packaging system to get them out of a confined space. And I'm talking kind of confined space specifically in this case. Is there a stretcher or a device that you predominantly use? Yeah, we we actually have just sort of made our own because uh, most of our confined spaces or most confined spaces are somewhat vertical as well. So there's massive overlaps in the, the two skill sets. And in a lot of our confined spaces, they are, they are a vertical rescue as well. So we've just got this new fabric rest, uh, stretcher where we've got a built-in harness. So if we had somebody stuck in a confined space that didn't have a harness on, pretty much the fabric stretcher, we can roll out, we can harness them up. It's, it's actually sewn into the stretcher. Um, so that's our, our floor protection pretty much. Uh, then we package them up nice and tight. And then we can haul them out with that. So we, we've got one stretcher now that has the best of both worlds. The manufacturer that, that's building it for us has just gone and put some ultra molecular polyethylene in the bottom of the stretcher. So when we're dragging that fabric stretcher out, it won't wear out anymore. Because the problem is, if you're in a concrete structure, or steel structure on rocks, it was tearing and, and wearing out really quickly. So we've sewed this ultra molecular polyethylene in the bottom. Then when we drag it, there's no friction, but it also won't wear out the stretcher. So that's, um, we call that a super secure stretcher. So we've just, just in the last couple of weeks, finished modifying that. And that's going to be our go-to easy packaging stretcher. Um, outside of that, we use the uh, stainless uh, Ferno steel stretcher. It's, it's, it's hardcore. We've banged that thing that, that much. It can't break. It's fantastic. Right on. Um, anything else you want to throw out there or add or? No, mate, no, it was, uh, it was thanks for, for asking me on and it was good to have a chat and uh, I think I'm good to go. Right on. Well, thank you again for uh, joining us.